0: Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Good morning, Marjorie. How are you? Happy New Year. Thank you. I cannot believe we're in January. I am not sorry to see the back of 2020
1: for <laughs> sure. If there's anyone out there who wishes we were still in 2020, let us know. Give us one good reason why we still could be in 2020. Yeah. Thank goodness we made it to the other side, eh? I think the whole idea of dry January is going to go right out the window this year. We're just going to go hell for leather, do whatever we want, enjoy, right? Surely this has got to be the year of enjoying. I wonder if there's like a, histor- you know, they keep talking about like the historical Spanish flu and all these things. I wonder if there's like a historical people going nuts the year after. <laughs> Nobody's interested in that year, but I'm interested in what happens.
0: I think there is an economics term for that. Something like a pleasure bounce or <laughs> a pleasure revolution or a pleasure overload. When like all the industries and companies that are involved in sort of basically letting you have a good time, really thrive and grow. I shall find out what the correct term is so we can use it liberally. Well, and if you are working in that
1: industry out there, listen up. This is the year we have expectations from you. You know, it's all up to you. We're all on a bit of fun this year. So yeah, forget dry January. Forget healthy kicks. It's time to have fun. It's pleasure
0: year. revolution all the way. Yeah,
1: exactly. <laughs> and the days are getting lighter, a little slowly, but they're getting lighter. So we're heading back towards uh, swimming not in the dark in the morning. I love it once that switch flips. And you know, even in your head you know it's just getting lighter which is great.
0: And our theme this month as well really I think is one for sort of moving and getting going and looking outwards and we're focusing on things relating to flight. Yeah, which is the theme that we chose around
1: Dorothy's story that we're going to be using this morning. So unlike the last set of podcasts where we commissioned people to write the work, we chose the stories this time and then chose themes that we think will work well for you all out there. So this is flight, which we thought was appropriate for January, although I'm not sure if birds are actually moving in January, but that's by the by, we're imagining the kind of great movement again. So we've got that and we've got a poem by Margaret Atwood that Dorothy chose for us as well. Should we get stuck in? Yeah, let's do that called A Visit from Niven and Flynn by Dorothy Lawrenson, who is one of our lead readers. Charlie wasn't sure what woke him, the noise of the birds outside, or Zach stirring beside him. Being careful not to knock over the wine on the bedside table, he reached for his glasses and put them on, then raised himself on one elbow until he could see. Without them, The scene outside the open window was a tantalizing blur of fluttering and chirping and a rapid tapping sound indicated an unseen visitor pecking at the far side of the wire cage. He watched as a blue tit alighted on a perch and switched its head rapidly left and right, checking for the all clear, before darting its beak into the hole to extract some seed. Its flickering, jerky motions reminded Charlie of an old silent film. Looking down at the sleeping form beside him, he felt momentarily guilty that he was keeping the sight of the birds to himself, but he didn't want to wake Zack this early, and anyway, the birds would keep up their antics throughout the day. When they first got the bird feeder, Charlie had waited by the window, and Zack laughed at his eagerness. The feeder was of sturdy metal construction, with a roof to keep the rain off and a base that collected fallen seed. They mounted it on the windowsill and filled the three containers with different types of food. The black sunflower seeds, which Zack said the birds would go crazy for, were held in a tall perspex tube punctuated by perches and feeding holes. There was a wire mesh cage for nuts and another cage with more widely spaced bars for tasty-looking fat balls. Now what? Charlie peered expectantly down at the trees in the communal garden. Give it time. I bet we'll see a blue tit first. Since Charlie had moved in at the start of lockdown, they had both been out of a job. Zach joked that they should be used to, quote-unquote, resting. Actors had a lot of practice at it. But as it became clear that theaters were to remain closed indefinitely, the novelty of the situation waned. Eventually, Charlie picked up some occasional admin work. He liked, in any case, to maintain a semblance of busyness by putting on clothes and shoes and going to the makeshift desk he had set up in the kitchen, whereas Zack was happy to spend all day in bed in his dressing gown. At first, Charlie worried this behavior was a symptom of depression, but he soon realized it was Zack's normal routine. He only showered and dressed when he had to leave the house, and was otherwise quite happy to spend his time idly looking through the window. Charlie had always believed he possessed plenty of patience, but disenchantment gradually set in as days, then weeks, and finally nearly a month passed without any birds apparently noticing the feast laid out for them on the windowsill. He stopped spending afternoons in his bedroom and instead went back to his computer to update his blog or tinker with his CV. Zach stayed in bed, listening to the radio and scrolling aimlessly on his laptop, in the evening, they would cook dinner together, then take a glass of wine back to bed and search for something to watch online. At first, Charlie had been keen for them to tune into live broadcasts of plays, but they soon abandoned even this connection to the theatre world. No matter how convincing the performances, it made them both feel despondent to watch actors addressing an audience of empty seats. Instead, they sought out old war movies and thrillers, and took turns curating miniature collections on different themes. Zack favoured films about aerial combat. The First of the Few, The Battle of Britain, The Blue Max. Charlie moved sideways from the war genre to plan what he called the Things Could Be worse" season. The Bridge on the River Kwai, Papillon, Scott of the Antarctic. It was Zack who suggested adding Birdman of Alcatraz. I think I wouldn't mind being imprisoned, he reflected, as long as I could see the birds. Shall we stop there? Yeah. I feel like we get to know them already in that, you know, just a few short paragraphs. And also, I really love that it's about the story of two people who are completely landlocked in their flat. I think lots of us think of people whose work has reduced or changed, but in theatre for sure. I mean, I guess with all the streaming of stuff as well, it's not set to change imminently, but let's hope by summer we'll be able to go back to the theatre. But I guess, you know, they could work in almost any industry that had been shut during lockdown. There were so many, I mean, during lockdown itself, there was. Almost everything was shut, the restaurant industry and hospitality of any kind, really. But often those places use that time to kind of renew, you know, their painting or their decoration or other things. So my wonder is everything opens up again if we'll see kind of bright and shiny things, whereas the theatres just go dark. And it's interesting that that's a kind of, we can all imagine a theatre going dark. It's a very visceral image, isn't it?
0: And I think there were some theatres that left on what they were calling universally the ghost light. So one light on in the theatre as a sign of the fact that it wasn't completely shut off. I saw a project that various theatres were um, using that as a sort of art installation type of thing that the ghost light would remain burning brightly while the theatre was closed. And the idea that they moved in together at the start of lockdown. Yeah. Which I think is a a brave choice or an, an interesting choice. I mean, my experience is going into lockdown with people that I had been living with and had lived with for a long period of time so that idea of having to make that decision of the only way we can continue to be in each other's company is actually to move in
1: I I mean it's funny it makes me think I know
0: someone who had a lockdown partner
1: (laughs) who was not let's just say her partner long term but it was just someone she decided well it wasn't going to be a long-term relationship but she thought why not not be lonely and she said it was great fun and when lockdown ended the relationship ended and they knew that it would it was just meant to be a bit of fun which I thought was quite brave and then, of course, lots of people came out of lockdown with different family relationships or organization of their families that split up during lockdown because there was so much pressure. So it's funny how everybody, so many people did different things, didn't they? Um, but I don't get the sense that it's gone badly, but it does make me think they've learned something about each other. You know, that idea that he hadn't realized that Zach only got out of bed when he had somewhere to go. You know, I suppose it shows up the differences in people when you spend that much time together, doesn't it? Um, because if, you, if you're if you with someone all the time, you get to know that. If you're with someone just bits of the time, you might follow the other person's habits. Or just want to spend time with them, so you would get out of bed. But I suppose if, if they're together and have nowhere to go, Zach might as well stay in bed. Are you a Zach or a Charlie? That's my question, Claire. We don't uh, we don't live together, so
0: I'm definitely a Charlie.
1: Yeah, I have to say I am too. I'm not as I'm not as up and out as you are, but I definitely couldn't stand to be in my bed all day in a dressing gown. Yeah, what I really like is that idea that you give yourself permission in these periods. So I think it's I, that's another thing I'd love to see studied both our kind of reactions in January of, um, you know, when a, when a pandemic is over. I'm curious about what, what happens to people and their how they change their behaviors. But also what we give ourselves permission to do during that pandemic. We knew that lockdown was only for a particular period. So did everybody just, I think most people said to hell with health and just ate whatever they wanted, or some people got sporty again and fit, you know, it'd be curious. So it, sounds, it feels like that kind of Watching movies in bed and having wine is—it felt like a gift they gave themselves. But maybe I'm just being generous. I also love the idea of curating a whole series of. I mean, watching one movie for me is a big gift of time. I almost never watch movies or a TV. But the idea of curating a whole series of them is hilarious.
0: I like the idea of it being the things could be worse series. <laughs> <laughs> And also,
1: like, maybe we should ask everyone out there listening to curate a kind of patience series like this will end, you know, because I suspect seeing an end on the horizon isn't the same as it actually ending. So, you know, in some ways, some of us who are impatient, and that's one of my faults for sure, will find this period really frustrating that we can see how things will get better, but they're not better yet. So we read on and see what happens to these two. We haven't even talked about the birds and this is about flight, but I love the hopefulness of the birds. And I also recognize that sentiment of putting something out and just expecting it to happen right away. So it feels like so far it's a best story about patience in a different way in a, in a setting that's requiring a lot of patience. So it's not instant gratification, which I think is a brave thing in a lockdown. I did the same. I put a bird feeder up and expected birds. I'll tell you after we read the next section what we actually saw in the bird feeder.
0: One morning, a blue tit finally, fleetingly touched down. Smiling, Zack nudged Charlie, who gasped and stifled a shriek of joy. How did you know the blue tits would be first? He whispered. That's what they're like. Cheeky, cocky, inquisitive. You must have heard how they pierce milk bottle tops to get at the cream. When he was a child... An earnest aunt had tried to interest Charlie in ornithology. He had enjoyed copying the drawings from the books she sent, but real birds hopped and flew so rapidly they were hard to recognise and impossible to draw. It had never occurred to him they might have personalities, that they could be recognised by their behaviour. The blue tit grew braver and its visits more frequent, and before long it was joined by a mate when the restless little coal tits arrived, and shortly after that, the big, bullying great tit, there were flurries and skirmishes over the best perches. If the great tit was involved, it would always win. But the blue tits were more in evidence. Their acrobatic skills, making them appear reckless and swashbuckling, like David Niven and Errol Flynn in Dawn Patrol, Zach said. He had predicted that the finches would come next, and Charlie hoped eventually to see a goldfinch. This morning, there was only the usual suspects, but they made a lively enough cast of characters. One of the blue tits took off from the lowest perch and was immediately replaced by the other. Another flash of blue and yellow, and it too was replaced, this time by a coal tit. Charlie smiled. So far, the coltits were his favourites. Their tiny, sleek, badger striped heads peeking around the nut cage as they spiralled up it, never staying still for more than a second. Lately, they had discovered the fat balls, but the sunflower seeds were still everyone's favourite. In fact, the seed hopper could stand to be refilled. Charlie checked himself before getting out of bed, realising that would disturb Zach, then decided. It was high time. He leaned over and ruffled the overgrown head of hair he could see half buried in the pillows. Cup of tea? I'll put the kettle on after I've refilled the seed. You treat those birds better than me, Zack laughed, struggling into an upright position. Those birds are stars of the first rank. Look, here comes Niven and Flynn. Ay, aye, here comes trouble, right on cue. The men watched as the two blue tits swooped in from opposite directions and engaged in a brief mid-air negotiation before landing on opposite sides of the seed container. Charlie knew he could now get up and go to the kitchen without scaring them away and that when he returned, they or some other birds would be there. And who knew? Perhaps a goldfinch might be one of them. I'd better get going, he said, and made to get up. But Zack pulled him back a hurry. Let's just watch the birds for a while. They sat for a few minutes, commentating on the birds' comings and goings. But Zack could feel that Charlie was anxious to get the day underway, so he released him. Don't worry, he promised. I'll let you know if the goldfinch comes. Oh, I feel
1: like we get to know them even better in this part of the story. That I feel like they're good for each other because Zach's encouraging him to not race out of bed, to do that meditative thing of actually trying to be present. Just watch the birds. Which, you know, I would find difficult, I think, first thing in the morning. Even a lockdown, I would be thinking...
0: I know what you'd be thinking. I need to get the coffee pot on. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: no. I have a coffee pot now that makes coffee on a timer. So there's coffee downstairs waiting for me. It's my best gift to myself. I love the you treat the birds better than me. Very sweet. I feel like it's a lovely, you know, we get a sense of the kindness in this relationship.
0: Yeah, and we get that too, I think, from the leaning over and ruffling the overgrown head of hair.
1: And I feel like it's, there's something, you know, in the relationship between the birds, you know, how they're one pulls the other out and, you know, or if it the great tits there, you know, they're always first in or whatever, but the blue tits sort of swirling and landing feels like it's a kind of lovely visual image of, of these two men, you know, kind of, yeah, working well together. In tandem,
0: as it were. And I like that realization that we get that dawns on Charlie that birds can have little personality mm. in the context of that. I mean, I always think of, of robins, it's quite sort of cheeky and bullying and in the garden, and the tits buzz around, as Dorothy describes. But it's interesting that that had never occurred to Charlie and he'd just seen them as sort of the pages on a book, you know, the physical manifestation. Of what they looked like. I think that's a really urban sentiment that, you know, birds are birds.
1: I mean, I'm trying to think if I really recognize that. Probably not until my parents moved. When I went to university, my parents moved out of Washington DC, a little bit into the country, sort of an hour outside, which in those sort of places isn't very far. It's still considered suburbia. And then they had a whole series of crows that lived on that land and they would wake you with their horrible kind of noise in the morning. I remember thinking, okay, You know they're annoying. You know that was the first kind of my memory of being really engaged with bird life because it doesn't really happen in the city in the same way. I'm not sure that it happens here for me in Edinburgh really. Even the bird feeder that I put out, we looked out one night and there were mice in it. Ah! And the children all went bananas, thinking, oh it's a mouse!" And then actually, when they looked, they were like, "Ah!" It's so cute. Can we bring it in? And I just lost the plot and got a cat. And funnily enough, there have been no mice in that bird feeder again. I don't know if your kids engage with birds, but ours certainly don't. Maybe we need to do a bit more of that, actually.
0: Not massively. If we're out for a walk, they will notice. Or if we're in a place where that is the thing that we're there to do to look at the animals or the wildlife, then yes, they will. But not, I wouldn't say in general. We have a lot of squirrels in our garden and quite often if we're sitting having breakfast or whatever and a squirrel appears, they'll stop and watch it for a bit. But not so much birds.
1: I used to always think I don't know if it's an American thing, but I used to always think the bird watching was something that you did when you get older. And then one of my surprises in, in the UK was how many people my age, or maybe it's just the fact that I'm older now, are bird watchers. or what do you call them? Twitchers who will even travel to see particular kinds of birds. I remember being surprised that someone in their twenties was really keen on me I was just, literally just shocked. You know, I always thought it was something that grandparents did.
0: Yeah, I think there's a sort of age, certainly when I was. Was a child that you were encouraged to join the RSPB and certainly did projects at school on various, you know, seabirds and game birds and various things. So I guess it probably is a generation of children that had that similar experience for whom it may be stuck I mean, that's one thing that happened in lockdown too, isn't it? That everybody noticed the birdsong because
1: suddenly there was no traffic noise, at least in Edinburgh. I mean, wherever you are, there might never have been traffic noise, but certainly in the centre of Edinburgh, it suddenly went very quiet and everybody could hear the birds, which was a huge change. I guess that's one question I hadn't even thought of. In your mind, how old are Charlie and Zach?
0: Quite young, I think. Early 20s, maybe. But there's nothing in this story that that they couldn't be in their 50s or their 60s, right? No, there's not. I think the joy and the wonder at the birds feels to me quite a young response. Yeah, whereas I was thinking that that maybe makes them older in my mind, but I think that might be quite
1: an ageist response or that that same kind of image of people who like birds are older but yeah, there, but there is something about the ease with which they navigate the differences in their characters and that makes me think that they're maybe younger because I feel like younger people are more willing to think, well he's like that and I'm like this and we don't have to be the same. The
0: films that we list are a bit older but it could be that they're sort of going back to films that they never saw and had heard of rather than revisiting films that they had enjoyed when they first came out.
1: You're right, it's true are the cup of tea thing? You know, I don't think any of my teenagers would think to get a cup of tea first thing in the morning, unless it was me making it for them. But maybe in Britain, again, it's something you're trained to do, you know, when you're younger in a way that as we certainly weren't in America. You know, I didn't even drink coffee in high school. It wasn't a thing back then, though, was it? Yeah, and I love that last line, don't worry, I'll let you know if the goldfinch comes. It feels like a real kindness. It's not said in a kind of, well, in my head, it wasn't said in a sort of snarky, you know, voice. It was just like a sweet, don't, you know, I know you're anxious about missing something and all keep an eye out
0: yeah I've, I felt the same and the goldfinch feels like the holy grail doesn't it it feels like once you've seen the goldfinch you will be complete
1: who knew there was a cold hit as well I didn't even know that either so there are loads of flash and blues and yellows and yeah it's interesting it, it does make me think I want to pay more attention you know to what's out there and the only the goldfinch brings to mind that you know that image in the book, yeah. the, the goldfinch, and so I've now forever that image is in my head, which is a painting. But I wonder if that's kind of for for it's interesting to me how popular culture informs the way our sort of visual images of things. So I suspect many of us who have who had no idea what a goldfinch looked like, will now draw to mind that particular image that was on the cover of that book.
0: Absolutely. For me, that's certainly what's sprung to mind.
1: Yeah, which is interesting, isn't it? How That's how words influence the way we see things in our mind, particularly things we hadn't seen before. Um, but I suppose that's true down, right down through the ages, and that's a much bigger topic of how we represent things and how those things stick visually in a way that stories don't in the same way. I think it's a, it's it's a lovely almost like a lovely snapshot or a lovely moment in very short paragraphs giving us a real sense of who's in the room you know and how these men behave around each other or how we ought to maybe behave around each other that kind of slowness
0: and we learn so much as we've said but in what is a really short space of time in their lives
1: it gives me hope you know that that idea of people who are really different can manage to navigate those differences and often those you know they say opposites attract don't they That's why people work well together, because they're able to acknowledge it and give each other space, which feels like that's what's happening here. It's not like, oh, I'm really annoyed with you because you stay in bed all day. It's like, well, no, my way is doing it this way, sitting at the kitchen table, and your way is doing it this way. And I suppose if neither of them is working, it's a survival instinct, isn't it? It's not about other things. It's just how you navigate this particular time. And it feels like, as we've said, they're doing that with kindness. I guess the difference between lockdown... And real life, is that you know it will end. So a bit like my friend who, you know, took up with someone, shall we say, during lockdown, she called her him her lockdown partner. You know, you know it's for a particular time, so you can kind of really dive in and enjoy it. Whereas if it was every day and you knew it was going to carry on like that, maybe it would be, maybe the story would be different.
0: Shall we swap over to the poem? Yeah, shall we? I really enjoyed that story this morning.
1: Yeah, it's made me think differently about slowing down but also
0: noticing and and all
1: sorts of things just about the way that we we deal with other people who manage crises
0: differently than us um, i think it's a good reminder thank you dorothy you made me want to go and look and find other pictures of the goldfinch so that i don't only have that painting on the front cover of the book in my head if you're listening and can think of other images send us them or tweet them
1: to us because we'd, we'd love to see them or maybe what a cold tit looks like i'd love to know what that is um, so Dorothy is chosen Flying Inside Your Own Body by Margaret Atwood. I'm so pleased that she has because actually Margaret Atwood's obviously known for her fiction and other writings. So it's lovely to get a poem by her as well. Okay, Flying Inside Your Own Body. Your lungs fill and spread themselves, wings of pink blood, and your bones empty themselves and become hollow. When you breathe in, you'll lift like a balloon and your heart is light too and huge, beating with pure joy, pure helium. The sun's white winds blow through you. There's nothing above you. You see the earth now as an oval jewel, radiant and sea blue with love. It's only in dreams you can do this. Waking, your heart is a shaken fist, a fine dust clogs the air you breathe in. The sun's a hot copper weight pressing straight down on the think pink rind of your skull. It's always the moment just before gunshot. You try and try to rise, but you cannot. Gosh, I don't know about you, but that poem takes me all over the place. I feel Mm. like I've got whiplash from it.
0: Yeah, I mean, at the start of it, it made me think of birds immediately. Mm, I think it was maybe the hollow bones reference and that sort of bird's eye view looking down on earth. But then when we get to towards the end, I'm not so sure. Yeah, and I thought it was maybe a dream, you know, that idea of,
1: you know, we can sometimes fly in dreams and then we fall in them as well, you know, that, I don't know if you've had those dreams, lots of us have, I know, you're falling and you wake up with a shudder. And then I recognize that kind of your heart is a shaken fist, that kind of thumping of the heart when you do wake. And it does help when she says it's only in dreams you can do this. But, you know, I don't, I mean, even for me, when I fly in dreams, what I have to say has only happened a couple of times or a handful of times. I don't fly away from earth. I'm not looking down at earth as a jewel. And it's this idea of flying inside your own body. Is it about the imagination? I don't recognize the breathing in and lifting. I wondered if it was about death. You know, about that kind of... Transition? Yeah, exactly. All those stories of kind of watching your own body from people who've come back, as it were, from the other side. You know, my mum used to work in an operating theater as an anesthetist nurse. She's full of these stories of people who would be able to describe the surgery when things went wrong. And there's, you know, there's no way they would have been able to see it. So she always had this... And they were always somewhere in the corner of the room looking down. So this is what that makes me think of, that idea of lifting, you know. And helium, I guess, makes me think of
0: breathing in. uh, And that line the sun's white winds blow through you there's nothing above you is that sort of idea of being at the top looking down yeah exactly That's sort of almost in a ghostly way
1: and then when you come back it's with a real thump well I certainly recognize that in dreams if you wake up with a thump or people you know when you have that m- moment of falling in a dream and you wake it's a real kind of a relief that you're not actually falling but then that you my heart is always thumping and that fine dust clogging the air For me, is that kind of you know breathlessness of like trying to gasp in, um, and suddenly the sun's a hot copper weight, heavy and difficult.
0: I love that description of the earth as an oval jewel, radiant and sea blue with love. Gives you well the 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 word love gives me a kind of real calmness. It's not a fearful thing. It's a positive thing, right? It's not necessarily. I don't think the earth is radiant with love. It's The speaker radiating love out as they look down is almost making the love lay over the earth, as it were.
1: You know, it makes me think of those kind of again near death, you know, stories. I guess, but you know, people who've had a real brush with death, whatever it is, whether it's you know an accident or an illness or something, they definitely. I don't know if you would say this, Claire, but in my mind, they definitely have a different perspective. I can think of one person in particular, nothing annoys him, nothing, it, no, people don't irritate him, everything just kind of is like, yeah, whatever, like, okay, that person, you know, if, he, I, if it was someone I used to work with and say As such and such, that's gone wrong, or that's difficult, and he would be like, well, okay. Just literally nothing would get a rise out of him, which I thought, well, if that's what you get with a brush with death, we should all have it because, you know, it's a great way to live.
0: Yeah, and I know someone who had a similar experience and, and his attitude changed in that he just said yes to everything. You know, very much living his life as though each day was his last, which must be quite exhausting, I think. There's a lack of fear there, I guess, you know, in some ways. So I mean, I completely understand it as a response, but it just seemed... That you would need a lot of energy to say yes to everything and then deliver on all your yeses. That makes me think
1: I had a chat outdoors with someone recently who you know has had a diagnosis of cancer and and she's fine but she knows that it will get her at some point in the coming years you know and she's very open about it and um or she was very open with about with me about it and how that changes your life because you know it's not like you or me who i think we're both relatively well and you know so our expectation is that we've got dozens of years not five you know i think about the friends who have that kind of time limit How does that change what you do? And it is that kind of love and refusal to get bogged down with the details of, you know, whatever it is, people's behavior or their own issues. You know, it really streamlines your thinking, I think, um, in terms of what it is you want to accomplish in that period of time. So, But we can't all live like that, right? Because nothing would get done.
0: It reminds me a wee bit of that poem, I don't know if you know it, Dust If You Must it's basically i think one we looked at school and it be, and the tenant of it is dust if you must but the dust will still be there when the sun set and the dust will still be there when the party's over and the dust will still be there when the whatever person has gone back to the country that they came to visit from that idea of you know it, it's fine to have some order but don't lose sight of the real joys which makes me think of that poem and I can't think of who it's from about how the, the washing cycle never ends you know how you
1: yeah how do you ever break that cycle of, by living life there's stuff to do so with the, the whole point of the poem is I guess dust if you must you know take take your moments out but yeah I wonder in this poem whether it's much more kind of trying to get us to step back And I guess that the two lines, which are beautiful at the end, it's always the moment just before gunshot. You try and try to rise, but you cannot. The first time I read it, I thought, ooh, this is a poem about a firing line or... Something and again, even in those dreams, when you know something terrible is going to happen, I recognize that that sentiment of being a dead weight. You know, that trying to move your body but you can't. So if it isn't a firing line, it's a it's a dream state where you're not able to move. But actually, you know, going back to what we were talking about, I wonder if it's always the moment just before you die where you realize that you haven't done these things, and although you've tried and tried to rise above
0: the dusting, as it were, but you cannot. I know. I think you could you could extrapolate them out a little. For me, it supports that dream idea and that sleep idea because there is that phenomenon, isn't there, of some people who, you know, your body prevents you from moving while you're dreaming. So if you're dreaming that you're cycling, you don't, you're not actually physically cycling. But some people have an, a level of consciousness where they have an own awareness of not being able to move, even though they're asleep. And, and that, I think, can be really terrifying.
1: Yeah, so those dreams of not being able to move happen to me too, where you're do they? You're I've never you're in a dangerous that. situation and, and you literally physically can't move, but it's because you're actually physically trying to move your body and you can't. And then you wake and think, Oh my god. And I can move, actually. But yeah, there's something, yeah, it's a terrifying thing. But I love the rhyme of it at the end as well. There's something kind of nurturing or comforting in the rhyme, even though it's a, it's a terrible delivery, in the sense, that, or it's delivering a terrible message. It's not a terrible delivery. It's a beautiful delivery. But, you know, it's a it's a real sucker punch for me at the end you know, think like we're trying and trying, but you can't. So for me, I can extrapolate that back out to we're trying and trying to rise above all the other stuff and see the world as sea blue with love and radiant, but actually we can't. And I guess going back to the beginning of the poem, thinking about the way birds, you write the hollowness that makes us think of birds and how they lift up and over things all the
0: time. So I love that image, you know, as, as something that we all aim for, really. It felt to me a bit like an exhortation to just try a bit harder. You know, I almost wanted to read, "You can try and try to rise, but you cannot bracket yet." Close bracket. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to send your uh, edits yeah, to Margaret? Yeah, shall I edit? <laughs> 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 Just a few thoughts that you might like <laughs> you to incorporate.
1: If we're using this with open book groups, and we hope you will, by the way, uh, we'd like you to insert the word yet. You know, it's that kind of um, thing that you get with children in school where they learn to say, oh, yeah, not, they... I can't do multiplication yet. So the, the trick is to always include the word yet at the end of a sentence about something it's you a, can't do. what's it called, growth mindset. <laughs> yeah well Margaret Atwood just hasn't had enough of a growth mindset and let's just say I have to say having read The Handmaid's Tale I think that might be true right across her work (laughs) I think we should leave it there before we get in any bigger trouble (laughs) I think you're right I think you're right but it's been great and it's a lovely connection actually between the two you know in terms of thinking of yeah flight and bodies and what we do within ourselves to make things possible
0: or not possible so thank you Dorothy for that selection And we very much look forward to being with you again. It will be the beginning of February. We're on a monthly podcast schedule at the moment, but you can catch up with any of our podcasts you've missed or our newsletters or any of the stories or poems that uh, we've used today on our website at openbookreading.com. Thanks
1: for having us in your ears today.